Sorry, we need to be a little bit more in the middle. So I want to start this morning by asking you, and this might be a lot easier for the children, because you're, well, let me say the younger ones, because your imagination is still vivid and alive. But I want to ask you to imagine a castle, a castle in a land far, far away in a time long, long ago. It sounds like the start of a Shrek movie. And what was that land called? Uh, land far, far away, something like that, that's right. In this land, this castle is built in a beautiful valley. The castle is built from ancient rocks. And while the castle was being built, the king of the land decreed that there be a safe room built in the castle for the protection of his family in times of trouble. And ever since the peace in the land has been broken by evil, the royal family has found protection in this secret room, this safe room, whenever there's been trouble. But the this safe room, or this secret room, is not a very obvious room. The door to the secret room is hidden, um, because if it's not hidden, it's not a secret room. But in front of it would be not the absolute best picture in the castle, but probably the most ordinary looking picture, or tapestry, would be covering the door. Because the nature of this is, you know, that it it doesn't need to draw attention. But when the, the, the king's family enters that secret room and there's a secret way to get to the door and a secret way to open the door, once they are in that room, they're completely safe. And although you know, the, the, the danger might only be a meter away, that ancient rock that the castle is built from, even if the, the danger is right beside you, the royal family in the castle is completely safe. And so I want to share with you today that our Lord, our Father, has decreed a similar secret place. And it's also hidden, in a way. And it's a, a door to this place, it's a door that is unseemingly important to the world. But behind the door, and in the secret place of, of the Lord, we find complete protection. So the first question you might have is, does the Lord actually hide or not share all the truth with us? And the answer is absolutely yes. Because our scientists today still don't understand a fraction of the Lord's creation. He hasn't revealed all the secrets of how the earth hangs in space and it rotates around the sun. You know, we try and explain it, but, you know, the furthest reaches that we can see now, I saw a clip last night that they discovered for the first time they took a photo of a black hole. And what they said was, 
that it's great that they can now see it, but they have no idea what happens in a black hole. So that just gets everybody to speculate. But at the end, they have to say, we have no idea. But for the first time, we actually have a picture of it. But there's actually a few places in Scripture where we read where God shares with us that he hasn't shared all the knowledge with us and that some things he does keep hidden until his decreed time and then he reveals it. Job 28 is a chapter where Job beautifully describes the whole chapter through how God has hidden wisdom. So the, the heading is, Where is Wisdom Found? Job 28. And he starts by saying, it's not in the earth, it's not underneath the earth. Uh, wild animals don't know where it is. It's hidden from the eyes of every living, living thing. And that it's not in this world. The birds of the sky can't see it. So he uses this vivid imagery to explain to us that nothing in this realm can discover where God has hidden wisdom. And this is all about the search for wisdom. And at the end, God reveals that wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. So that gives us some indication that some real truths are hidden from the world because of our sinful nature. 1 Corinthians 13 also says, For now we only see a reflection as in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. Now I know part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So do you see that some of the Lord's provision for us is hidden? And there's a hidden secret here in Psalm 91 that we are going to discover this morning. Psalm 91 provides a promise of total rest and peace in time of trouble, in time of corporate trouble, but also in time of individual trouble. It's often called God's atomic bomb shelter verse or chapter. I don't know if anybody of you have ever heard that. But it's because of the all-encompassing promise that sits in Psalm 91. And so we call it an atomic bomb shelter because an atomic bomb is the most devastating thing known to man. And so we say this verse can protect us against the most devastating thing we can think of. So please read with me from Psalm 91. Verse 1. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Now King James translates verse 1 as he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And allow me to just read that again to you. He that dwells in the secret place of El Elyon shall abide under the shadow of El Shaddai. I will say of Yahweh, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So by putting the Hebrew words for God in there, we see that it's not by accident that the writer 
uses these different descriptions for God. Because El Elyon, El Shaddai, and Yahweh talks about the same God, but it illuminates a different aspect of His nature. The other word that we need to focus on in these first two verses is dwells. The second word. Whoever dwells in the secret place of the Lord. So dwells means not holiday accommodation. So not booking somewhere for three weeks, having a rest and then coming back home. That's not your dwelling place. It's also not like going to hospital where you go for a few days or a few weeks until you feel better and then you come home. The hospital is not your dwelling place. Whoever dwells in the secret place of the Lord means somebody that takes up permanent residence in that secret place. So this is the first thing we need to keep in the back of our mind is that these promises that we are going to go through applies to those who dwell in the secret place. And then verse 2 continues to say, I will say of Yahweh, our Lord, not any God, not the Jesus Christ we think exists, but the Lord that is revealed to us in Scripture, the maker of heaven and earth. You need to say of that God, He is my refuge. Not the God that the prosperity gospel preaches, the God of Scripture. He is my fortress, my refuge, my God in whom I trust. And then verse 3 to 6, we go through the various forms of danger in this world that protection is promised from. So verse 3, Surely He will save you from the foulest snare and from the deadly pestilence. So foulest snare. A fowler is somebody that catches birds. And to catch birds, you firstly need to know what type of bird you're catching, what type of food do they eat, how big is the bird, how big a trap do I need. So can you see how it's a very specialized art? You kind of need to know what bird you're after. And then you put out the exact food that attracts that bird, the exact kind of trap that will trap that bird. The trap is big enough, it's small enough. And so the foulest snare here is referring to the arch enemy of our souls, Satan. He knows exactly what type of bait you need to, to lure you to the trap. For me, it might be smoked brisket. For somebody else, it might be chocolate. But I'm, I'm talking about spiritual uh, bait. And that's why we find that most people have different, can I call them Achilles heels, when it comes to our weaknesses. And the foulest snare, the arch enemy of our souls, knows that. And Psalm 91 here acknowledges that. He knows. He's, and we won't be catched by the, the foulest snare. The second one is the, the deadly pestilence. The deadly pestilence here is referring to our sinful condition, our total depravity. And that sin clings to us like a pest. So this is something in modern medicine that we don't really know. But a pestilence 
is an overwhelming disease that affects the whole community. And the way to eradicate a pestilence is not to heal just one person, because as soon as he goes back into the community, he gets infected again. So pestilence is dealt with by eradicating the whole pest through the whole community. So do you see how our sinful condition is like a pest? And when you are in the community or in the body of God, why it's so important for us to corporately repent from sin. Because the one person or the two or three that continue sinning bring that pestilence back into the body. And that's from a corporate perspective. And then of course this applies on a personal level as well. Verse 4. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. You will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day. So again here, the terror of night. That's a danger against which we are safe. So what is the terror of night? What is the arrow that flies by day? So the terror of night refers to something unknown that comes under the veil of darkness. Something that you're not aware of or that might come surprisingly at night when you don't expect it. So it's secret, unexpected assaults from the enemy, Satan and his evil kingdom, under the protection of darkness. And one example of this is worry. Worry is an example of a terror at night. Because worry is worry, things like worry about money, worry about your health, worry about your children, worry about, you know, the list can go on. How many things do we worry about? We even worry about our salvation. And worry is like a nagging worm that just bit by bit eats away at you. And it never stops. And it tends to be at its peak during the quiet times at night when you get quiet. Because during the day you're busy and you don't think about those things. So maybe you've been struggling with worrying about something that has happened or needs to happen. And think about how this applies to you this morning. So it's the terror of night. And then the arrow that flies by day. That's more of an open danger. It's daylight, you can see it coming. So it's known hostility against you. It's open attacks by the, by the enemy. And an example of this is fear. Because we know what we fear. We see it coming. Yet we are gripped by fear. And fear is the opposite of worry. In the way that fear is more like an arrow hitting you. Or a dagger being stabbed into your flesh. Fear, that moment that it grips you, is like being stabbed. Like being hit by an arrow. That's another example 
of an arrow. And you see how these two work together. An evil strategy of keeping you enslaved at night and attacking you at day. Fear and worry. And these two never work separately. They are two attackers that always work together. Working to enslave God's people. Working to enslave us to be eaten away, blessings to be taken away from us. Worry eats away at our flesh. Fear stabs us in the heart. And that's when you find a poet saying, you know, my heart fails within me. That is, that is fear gripping the heart to such an extent that you cannot think about moving forward. Verse 6. Nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. So now we're talking about the same two things, but the imagery becomes a lot more vivid because now they are personified. Now the pestilence stalks in the darkness and the plague destroys at midday. Referring to Possibly demons. Work of the evil kingdom. Or destroying angels sent by God. A thousand may fall at your side. Sorry, verse 7. Ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. And take note here of the personal nature in which this applies. It talks about your right hand. It will not come near you. you. You will observe it with your eyes. Verse 9. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High, El Elyon, your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent or near your house for us today. So this psalm is a very powerful promise by the Lord. And can you see why it's called the atomic bomb shelter? Because it's an all-encompassing promise that the Lord is our fortress. For those who with their mouths declare their dependence on Him, He provides this protection. And not just limited protection, everything in that list that we just discussed. And really, if you think about it, what else is there outside of those dangers? They really encapture everything. The whole list. And verse 11. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Note here, it's not one guardian angel as... A lot of people believe each one of us have one guardian angel. The Lord says, no. I will command my angels, many of them, regarding you. In all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands 
so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And they there, meaning the angels of verse 11. God will instruct them to lift you up. And interestingly, these are the verse, verses, the two verses that Satan quotes to Jesus in his second temptation. Did any of you pick that up? So remember, Jesus was led to the desert. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And then he's first tempted by Satan because he was very hungry. So if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Jesus resisted him. He said, you can only live of the word of God. And then he took him to the highest point in Jerusalem at the temple and said, throw yourself off. Jump off the temple. If you are the Son of God, uh, He will command His angels regarding you and they'll lift you up on their hands so that you will not strike your foot. So do you see the misapplication of taking two verses out of context and how He presents this to be God will physically save you if you jump off this building. We have just gone through all the spiritual aspects of what God will protect us against. And I also want to just draw your attention on the audacity of Satan in how he tempts. Because remember what's written in John 1. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now Satan is using words out of the Word, which is Jesus' Word, back to him to tempt him. If you think that our adversary is not uh, blatantly prideful and uh, dare I say courageous in his attempts to deceive, here he comes to the very author of scripture and uses his own words to try and deceive him. Deceive him. But he very cleverly doesn't quote verse 13, which is the very next verse. Because verse 13 talks about him. And it talks about his destruction. So you will tread on the lion and the cobra, you will trample the great lion and the serpent. So do you see the danger of taking scripture out of context? Do you see the danger of taking two verses and building a theology from it? and not taking the Word of God in context. I think a lot of us don't. Because there's uh, religious groups out there that do exactly that. Under the umbrella of Christian churches. But it's the, it's the oldest trick in the book, if I can call it a trick. But it's such a powerful deceit that Satan brings is he takes 95% of truth, mixes it in with the seed. And it's something that we very easily swallow. But Jesus doesn't. And he says, you cannot tempt God. Because this verse never meant that. And don't take it out of context. And so we see that the very next verse, Satan is defeated. You will trample the lion and the cobra 
you will trample the great lion and the serpent. So the lion imagery here refers to a very strong adversary, powerful. And then the context of what we're looking at, specifically Satan and his evil kingdom. The serpent, this may be easier for us to understand, because he's the serpent of old from the Garden of Eden. Specifically, Satan. And his attacks on us, his evil kingdom. And that's verse 13. Now between verse 13 and 14, the authorship change. There's speculation about who wrote this psalm. It could be Moses. And if it was Moses, a lot of this would be Moses reflecting on his time where Pharaoh has pursued him and wanted to kill him. The other possibility is David. And then you can also see how a lot of that reflects on David's life because he was pursued by Saul for over 10 years and Saul wanted to kill him. But from verse 14, it's the Lord speaking directly. So the, the authorship now, the words, change to the words directly from, from God, from Yahweh. And he says, because he loves me, says Yahweh, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So in that last verse, I will show him my salvation. There's no doubt that this points to Jesus. In our, in our salvation. So is it not wonderful that these are the words that El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one, El Elyon, the most high God, whose name is Yahweh, is speaking these words to you this morning. He's speaking it to you and me, to us, we who are so prone to worry and to fear. He's saying to us, stop. Stop worrying. Stop fearing. I've made a plan for you. There's a secret place that you can find shelter. But this remains unanswered. Where is the secret place? From verse 1. Where is the door to the secret place? So we understand now the benefits of the secret place, but where is it? Well, from the name in the King James, secret place, it is a secret place. Not everybody knows where it is. And remember the castle example that I asked you to imagine? So the king of the land decreed this secret room to be built, but he only shared the knowledge of how to get into this room with his children. Because if it was known to everybody, then the enemy would get in. And there's two clues that I want us to have a look at. One comes in Matthew 23, verse 37, where Jesus laments over Jerusalem. And Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather you, sorry, how often have I longed to gather your children 
together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. I'll read that and just give you a, a clue. Psalm 91 verse 4. He will cover you with his feathers. Another one is Colossians 3 that we read this morning. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for he died and you are now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So note those two clues, very strong clues. In Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus talks about covering like a hen covers his wings. And verse 3 in Colossians talk about us being hidden in Christ, in God. So brothers and sisters, this secret place that the Lord has decreed for us is the cross of Christ. And the door to the secret place is also made of wood. The door is the cross of Christ. And can you see how the cross to the world immediately repels away? Even before you turn to God, the cross and Jesus' sacrifice is not something that attracts the world. It's quite the opposite. It repels because of the sinful condition we are in. We don't want to acknowledge that the cross is the door to this secret place. But the Lord reveals that the wood, that cursed tree that he hung on, is the door to this secret hidden place that the Lord has decreed. And that our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is this secret room. And not just using your faith whenever you feel like it, running in and out, but dwelling. Dwelling, staying, permanently staying in your faith in Christ. The secret is that Jesus didn't die for himself. He died for us. He wasn't born for himself. He was born for us. He was born as our representative. He took our guilt. He took our punishment. He paid our penalty so that we can be adopted into his royal family and so that we can be the children to which this knowledge of where the secret room is, how do you open the secret door, can be shared. And it's only shared to the people that is in the royal family that accepts Christ. That knowledge becomes open to you. So paraphrasing Psalm 91, the first verse, who permanently holds on to the saving work of Christ on the cross will enter the rest in the shadow of El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one. And can you see how this is not just amazing protection in this room, but it, it's double protection because we are hidden in Christ, in God. 
That's what Colossians says. We are hidden in Christ, in God. So anything in this world, if you dwell in this place, needs to come through God the Father and through Jesus to get to you. Double protection. And this all starts by the birth of Christ, which we are leading up to in a few days' time. And we have the benefit that we look, we look backwards on the cross and we can see the immense, immense value in the birth of Christ. And so we can now truly be filled with joy for the birth of Christ because we understand what followed and why he was born, why he came into the world and what is the, the immense benefit and the blessing we have because he was born. It all started on that day in this world. Our great Father in his love and mercy has decreed for this to be from the beginning, from before time, that he would create this secret place where his children can be safe and can be protected from all the onslaughts of the world. And all we need to see this is the cross of Christ, to accept it, accept that he was born into this world, he was a real man who walked on this earth, and that he willingly and obediently went to the cross and was crucified. That's what you have to believe. He's the Son of God, and by His sacrifice, He paid our penalty. So I pray that with this, we head into Christmas with our hearts filled with joy, a different type of joy, a joy that brings ten thousands of angels to earth and make them sing with joy. The kind of joy about understanding that the great red dragon was standing there ready to devour this child, but God the Father snatched him away into this secret place. And in the same way, we are saved and snatched away from this great red dragon. He's not the innocent red devil with a tail and a pitchfork. His true form is a, is a murderer and a destroyer. So I pray that we, that we see this in the, Christ, in the birth of Christ. And that we, we go through Christmas to see the birth of Christ, not just as a baby in a manger, but as a man born walking towards the cross and willingly and obediently saving us. May you all be saved. May you all be protected. May you all feel safe. May you all have the peace of our God and our Lord over this Christmas period. Amen. Musicians, please.